Well, if you would, open up with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please feel free to use one of those provided in the seats in front of you. Uh, that'll be really helpful for you as we uh, work through this message this morning. In his early 30s, Martin Luther finally found peace. The Bible broke open to him as he studied its pages. He came to see that sinners before a holy God could be saved, made right with God, given peace with God by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. He came to see that when we believe on Jesus Christ, the righteousness that we could never earn, the righteousness that we could never do on our own, it is freely given to us so that we can go to heaven. Through this gospel discovery, Martin Luther's soul was saved. He was born again. His life was forever different and forever changed. But he was still a monk and a priest. And a professor. And he was a very busy man. Uh, In one letter to a friend, he said, I could use two secretaries. I do almost nothing during the day but write letters. I am a conventional preacher. I'm a reader at meals, a parochial preacher, a director of studies. I'm the overseer of 11 monasteries. I'm the superintendent of the fish pond at Litzkow. I'm a referee of the squabble over at Torgal. I'm a lecturer on Paul, a collector of material for a commentary on the Psalms. And then, as I said, I am overwhelmed with letters. I rarely have full time for the canonical hours or for saying mass, not to mention my own temptations with the world, the flesh, And the devil. And that was before things got crazy. After all, he lived and he taught in Wittenberg, Germany. And Frederick the Wise, the prince over this area of Germany, had made it his ambition to make Wittenberg the Rome of Germany. Remember, Rome had thousands of relics that Christian pilgrims would come and see to receive more grace from God. Frederick wanted to make Wittenberg a similar destination. By 1509, before Luther got there, he already had over 5,000 relics to display at Wittenberg. Roland Bainton, whose book I'm using for these introductions, gives us some of the highlights of the collection. It included one tooth of St. Jerome. Of St. Chrysostom, four pieces. Of St. Bernard, six. And of St. Augustine, four. Of Our Lady Mary, four hairs. Three pieces of her cloak, four from her girdle, and seven from the veil sprinkled with the blood of Christ. The relics of Christ included one piece from his swaddling clothes, thirteen from his crib, one wisp of straw, one piece of the gold brought by the wise men, Three bits of the myrrh, one strand of Jesus' beard, one of the nails driven into his hands, one piece of bread eaten at the Last Supper, one piece of the stone on which Jesus had ascended into heaven, even one twig of Moses' burning bush. By 1520, 
the collection had mounted from 5,000 to 19,000 holy bones. Uh, Those who viewed these relics on the designated day and made the stipulated contribution were to receive from the Pope an indulgence for the reduction of purgatory, either for themselves or for others, to the extent that they could reduce their time in purgatory by 1.9 million years and 270 days. And these were the treasures that were made available to the people on All Saints Day. All Saints Day was November 1st. This was the special day for viewing these relics because supposedly it was the extra righteousness of these saints that was transferred to the pilgrims when they viewed these relics and paid the necessary contribution. The Catholic Church taught that these saints actually had more righteousness than they needed. And that's great for normal sinners like us because that saint's extra righteousness can be applied to me by order of the Pope if I come and view that saint's bones or view some part of that saint and then pay the necessary contribution. In 1516, okay, 1516, Wittenberg received some fantastic news. The Pope had declared that Wittenberg would have the rare privilege of offering an indulgence on All Saints' Day alongside all of these relics that would grant the buyer full remission of all sins. In other words, every sin you've ever committed up to that day would be forgiven if you bought this special indulgence, this special Pope-appointed document that was only going to be available in Wittenberg, Germany. This was the tourist board's dream, right? Luther's in Wittenberg. And having come to realize from the Bible that forgiveness can only be found by trusting in Jesus, he he felt he had to do something. So three times leading up to All Saints Day, he included in his sermons the truth that full remission of sin cannot be given by any indulgence, any official document from the Pope. But remember... Luther himself was still a newborn baby believer in Christ. He was still trying to figure things out for himself. He, he yet, wasn't yet sure in 1516 whether relics or indulgences might have some place in the Christian life. By the next year, 1517, he had come a long ways in his understanding of that issue. And he was very upset. When members of his church, citizens of Wittenberg, came to him and told them that they were all going to hear this new man named Tetzel. Tetzel was just outside the borders of the city and he was dispensing new indulgences. Now, I need you to think with me, let you hear this story, make sure you understand it. Put simply, there was a man named Albert of Brandenburg and he wanted to be the head bishop of all Germany. He wanted to be the head man in the church in all of Germany. But the church was so corrupt that the way you got a position in the church was that you bought your way in. The Pope told Albert, if you want to be the head bishop of Germany, you must pay 12,000 ducats for the office. Namely, 1,000 ducats for each of the 12 apostles. 
Albert replied, no, he would pay 7,000 ducats for the office, 1,000 for each of the deadly sins. In the end, they agreed on 10,000 ducats. That was the price Albert would pay to become the head man of the church in Germany. But that was a lot of money, and Albert had to take out a loan in order to pay the Pope to become the head bishop. So the Pope gave Albert permission to offer this new indulgence on this condition. Half the money made through the indulgence would go to help Albert pay off his debt. The other half of the money made for the indulgence would go to help pay for the building of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. Uh, Michelangelo, famous for his painting of the Sistine Chapel, was one of the designers of St. Peter's Cathedral. Men like Michelangelo were the ones being paid by the money raised by the selling of these indulgences. So Albert sends this man, Tetzel, out to sell these new indulgences. And Tetzel would place a cross on the ground, and people would come to hear what he had to say. And he would plead with the people to set their dead relatives free from purgatory by buying these indulgences. Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying to you, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for only a pittance. Do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to his son, the mother to her daughter, We bore you. We nourished you. We brought you up. We left you our fortunes. And are you so cruel and so hard that now you are willing not to give just a little so that we will be set free? Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay the promised glory? Tetzel said, remember you are able to release them from purgatory. For as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And that was his little jingle and it was known all over Wittenberg. Well, on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago, the day before the big festival... The day before All Saints Day and all the tourists and the big day of the relics, Wittenberg, I'm sorry, in Wittenberg, Luther took 95 theses, 95 propositions, and he nailed them to the door of the castle church. They were written in Latin. Uh, they were a call for the scholars and the religious leaders of his day to have a debate about whether these practices were true or not. Most of the Germans didn't speak Latin. He wasn't doing this for the public yet. He, he wanted to get the, the religious leaders together to say, let's make sure this is right. But very quickly, without Luther's permission, the theses were translated into German and they were printed and being spread throughout Germany and beyond. Uh, Luther was an Augustinian monk. The Augustinian monks had their rivals. Okay, So we have Tar Heels and Wolfpack. Okay, these, these were the Augustinian monks versus the Dominican monks. And people took sides. Who you were? Are you an Augustinian or are you a Dominican? Which do you like better? Well, the Dominicans led the charge against Luther. And suddenly both sides were printing tracts. Both sides were printing pamphlets. And they were going all over Germany and beyond. One Dominican named Sylvester Pyrrhus was tapped by the Pope to give an official answer to Martin Luther. And very quickly, the foundational issue was exposed. And here it was. It was the issue of authority. 
Sylvester quoted popes. Sylvester quoted councils. Luther quoted scripture. Sylvester said that the Bible got its authority from the Pope. Luther responded by pointing out that Sylvester didn't quote any scripture at all in proving his points. On August 7th of 1518, Luther received a citation to appear in Rome on charges of heresy. He was given 60 days to get to Rome. He appealed to have his case heard in Germany and thus began lengthy negotiations. And all the while, the tracts, the pamphlets are being printed and spread around on both sides. All throughout the land, this was the topic of conversation in the taverns and in the homes. Luther feared for his life. He told his church one Sunday, he said, Look, I'm not planning on leaving you, but if you come to church one Sunday and I'm not here, you'll know what happened. And he bid them farewell. Remarkably, Frederick the Wise, the prince who collected all the relics and wanted Wittenberg to be the Rome of Germany, he began to take Martin Luther's side and he began to protect Luther. Finally, in 1519, a major debate was held in Leipzig between Martin Luther and a man named John Eck. And it was a major event, and there the issue of authority was front and center. So listen to what Luther says. This will push us into our text this morning. He said, let me talk German. So far, the whole debate had been in Latin. The common people couldn't even understand what was said. He said, let me talk German. I'm being misunderstood by the people. I assert that a council has sometimes erred and may sometimes err, nor has a council authority to establish new articles of faith. A council cannot make divine right out of that which by nature is not divine right. Councils have contradicted each other. Even the recent Lateran Council has reversed the claim of the councils of Constance and Basil that a council is above a pope. A simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. As for the pope's decretal on indulgences, I say that neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from the scripture. For the sake of scripture, we should reject pope and councils. Mount Hermon, was he right? This is the issue of Catholicism versus Protestantism. And even more fundamentally, this goes down to the question of whether or not you are a Christian. What is the authority in your life? How do you know what is true? How do you know what is good and what is bad? What is right and what is wrong? When we go to the scriptures themselves, we learned that the scriptures do not have authority because they come from a pope. That the authority of the scriptures does not come from any council. The Bible's claim for itself is a very different authority. Look with me at 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17. I hope these verses are very familiar to you. 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 through 17, Paul says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Friends, we need to affirm this most foundational truth. All Scripture is breathed out by God. 
All scripture begins with God. All scripture has its origin in the mind and the heart of God. When you read the Bible, you are reading the thoughts of God himself. God is the Bible's ultimate author. The scriptures are not authoritative because of any man or any church. The scriptures are authoritative because of what they are. The very word of God. Now, what I want to do is ask three questions of this verse. Three questions of this verse to help make sure we're understanding it correctly. So question one, what does it mean that the scriptures are breathed out by God? Question two, why should we believe that? And question three, what does it look like to embrace the Bible's authority? You ready? Here we go. Number one, what does it mean that the scriptures are breathed out by God? When we hear of God's breath... We should think of the Holy Spirit. Uh, God's Holy Spirit is often associated with breath. So we think of Genesis 2. God breathes into the man and the man becomes a living being. Uh, God's Spirit proceeds forth from him as the divine breath that carries the divine word. So right now I'm speaking to you. And as I am speaking to you, there is both breath and there is word. There is breath and there is sound. That is how God is as well. He speaks. And with his speech, there is breath. There's the Holy Spirit. And there is word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word. The Spirit is the breath of God. There is breath and word together. So we can say for sure that God's Holy Spirit brings God's thoughts to us in the form of Scripture. When the Bible says God breathed his word, it means that God's breath, his spirit, takes his divine thoughts intended for us and brings them to us in a way we can understand them. Uh, Though God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, God's ways higher than our ways, the spirit bridges the gap. The spirit brings God's words to us in a way that we can understand. Of course, we cannot talk about the Word of God without remembering that Christ Himself is the ultimate Word of God, the ultimate expression of God Himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, verse 14 of John 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Since Jesus Christ is the fullest expression of God, the fullness of deity dwelling bodily, the word that God sends forth by his spirit is a word centered on Christ himself. The Bible is a book that speaks to us about Jesus on every page. Jesus is the word that God is speaking. He is the message we are learning in every law, in every parable, in every proverb. And that message of Jesus comes to us through God's breath, the Spirit. So what we have here is what we call the inspiration of the Bible, and it is Trinitarian. The Father, the Son, the Spirit are all intimately involved. But let's get really practical. How does the Holy Spirit take the thoughts of a transcendent God and put them into a language that we can understand? Have you ever tried talking with an ant? Ever, ever tried that? How did that conversation go? How well did the ant understand what you were saying? Well, in this picture, we're the ant. 
How does the Spirit take the divine thoughts of God and bring them down where we can understand them? And the answer is that the Holy Spirit works through human agents. Let me have you turn real quickly. Turn over to 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, If you're using one of the the Pew Bibles, uh, you'll find the passage 2 Peter 1 on page 1018. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 19 and listen to what God says about how the Spirit takes divine truth and brings it to us where we can understand it. 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 19. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, here we go. That no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter says we have something sure. We have something you can count on. Your health is not something you can count on. Your bank account is not something you can count on. You might lose it all tomorrow. The government is not something you can count on. Your relationships with other people cannot be the anchor for your soul. They will let you down. Your job is not a sure thing. But here, Peter says, is a sure thing. Here is a rock beneath your feet. Here's something you can count on. The Scriptures. He says in the Scriptures we have a prophetic word. A word from God. And he says we would do well to pay attention to it. As a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter says you're living in a dark place. All around you is darkness. You can't see right from wrong, up from down. Wisdom from foolishness. You, you can't see. And then the Bible comes and it is light in a dark place. He says, pay attention to that light. False truths are being preached to us everywhere, even by our own flesh. Uh, Peter says there's coming a day when we won't need the Bible. There's coming a day when God's truth will be fully developed within us and we'll be in heaven, but that day is not yet here. If we're to think rightly, if we're to believe rightly, if we're to live rightly, we must look to this light. And as we look to this light, he says we have to do so with this in mind first of all. When you approach the Bible, he says this must be first of all in your mind. This is foundational, this is fundamental to your approach of the Bible. This must be at the bottom of everything else when you come to the Bible. What is it? The fact that the Bible is not just a book of merely human authorship. That the Bible is, in fact, the work of God. The word interpretation here literally means to loosen something, to unfold something. The idea is that no prophecy of Scripture was unleashed or unfolded by the will of a man. When you read the book of Genesis, you're not just reading Moses' opinion of how the world was created. When you read the book of Proverbs, you're not just reading Solomon's opinion of what a wise life should look like. Verse 21 makes it abundantly clear. Men spoke from God. So the Holy Spirit 
used human agency. He took truths of God and he came into a human being and then he worked through the mind and the, and the heart and the emotion of that human being to put God's truth into human language. So if you could get into an ant, okay, and work through the little mind of that ant and work through the language of that ant, then, then you could speak through that ant to the other ants. I don't know how you'd do that, but that's how it would work. That's what God has done for us. Our verse says that these people were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried can also be translated as driven. Um, In Acts 27, Paul talks about he's on a ship and that ship is being driven by the wind, a tempestuous wind that causes the ship to wreck. It's the same word. Right? He says the ship was being driven along. It's the idea here. The Holy Spirit comes upon a person and drives that person to speak from God. Remember Jeremiah? It's like a fire shut up in my bones. Woe to me, Paul says, if I do not preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes upon a human being, works through their mind, their heart, their tongue, their hands, their emotions to cause God's truth to be spoken or to be written down. Be careful here. Don't picture human beings becoming like robots. Don't picture Moses entering into a trance in which he loses all control of his body and the Spirit uses him like a puppet to speak or write things down. That's not how it happened. Rather, the Spirit works through the minds and the hearts of human writers. We see the personalities of the human authors coming out in the pages of the Bible. But that's completely consistent with what God has determined to give us. It's something to consider all the various people and the means that God used by His Spirit to bring His truth to us. Part of the Bible God wrote with His own finger. The Ten Commandments, right? Written in stone by the very finger of God. We also find pagan authors quoted in Scripture. We, when we studied Daniel, saw that Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan Babylonian king, is the author of a portion of the book of Daniel. God sometimes used dreams. Sometimes he used visions to communicate to biblical authors. But here's the point. God works through his spirit using human agents to give us his word now set down for us in written form. And if it is what it claims to be, the Word of God, then it is intrinsically authoritative over you and me. We don't stand over this book and judge it. This book is the Word of God, stands over us and judges us. The Reformers took very seriously Galatians 1.9. Uh, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. And therefore Martin Luther said, the true rule is this, God's word shall establish articles of faith. No one else, not even an angel can do so. If an angel shows up this afternoon at your house and starts revealing to you new information, you are not to believe it. Especially if any word of that angel contradicts anything in that book. Paul says this book is more sure than even an angelic revelation. Which is why the claims of Muhammad 
The claims of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons are not to be believed. Those religions have their origins in supposedly revelation that came from angels. But Paul says in Galatians 1, even if an angel preaches something different than this, don't believe it. As the Reformation spread throughout Europe, people who had just months before been worshipping the bones of dead saints and images and icons, they were suddenly giving all of that up. And they had a new esteem for the Bible. Suddenly all over Germany and then spreading beyond Germany, there was, a, there was a hunger and thirst for the word of God. People wanted to know truth. God raised up pastors who moved the pulpit back to the center of the Christian church, back to the center of Christian worship. These pastors began reading the Bible in the worship services in the language of the people. Up to that point, the Bible was being read, but it wasn't even in the language that the people knew. Pastors began reading the Bible in the language of the people, and the people listened earnestly and intently. They were taught that the Bible is a precious gift from God, better than gold, sweeter than honey, more precious than anything else on this earth. To hear the Bible is to hear the very voice of God. Pastors began preaching and teaching the Bible, even moving through books of the Bible in their sermons. You go home this afternoon, Google the sermons of Luther, Google the sermons of Calvin. You'll see they were amazingly simple. These were not high-minded academics speaking in high, lofty language. These men simply read the Bible and then did the best they could with God's help to explain it in the normal, everyday language of the people. They were trying to help the people think about what God had said in the Bible. They didn't preach their own ideas. They used Scripture to interpret Scripture. Uh, When there was a controversial passage, they would quote other verses of the Bible to show what position they should take. They made it clear that the Word was their authority, not them, and that it was only insofar as they helped people understand, believe, and obey the Word that they were being faithful as pastors. Luther said, The church is built on the word of the gospel, which is the word of God's wisdom and virtue. He said, It is the word of God that preserves the church of God. Mount Hermon, this is a fitting time for us as we near our anniversary service to ask ourselves again, is this the conviction we hold as a church? Is this the conviction that you hold as an individual? Have you come to the place where you can say with conviction, without doubt, that the Scriptures are the very Word of God worthy of your diligent study, attention, and obedience? Do you cherish the Word of God? Are you reading it? Are you seeking to understand it? Are you hiding it in your heart? Do you cherish these Lord's days because on this day we get to have the truths of this book pressed more clearly upon our souls together as a family? Are you thankful for the gift of the Bible translated into your language? God has revealed to you His glory in the Bible. God has revealed to you His love in the Bible. God gives you the good news of Jesus Christ in the Bible. God gives you the promises that will strengthen your soul in the Bible. God gives you a true worldview 
A proper assessment of man, insight into the big picture of history, all in the Bible. It's a living book with the Spirit working through it to affect our souls for good. Mount Hermon, Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure in all the world. And it's through the Bible that you come to know Jesus. It's through the Bible that you hear from Him. It's through the Bible that you sit at His feet and learn from Him. It is through the Bible that you behold the holy character of Jesus with eyes of faith and become like Him. Mount Hermon, something greater than the Grand Canyon, something greater than the stars on a clear night has been given to you. Jesus Christ is given to you and He comes in the pages of the Bible. Question two, we're going to move much more quickly now. Should we believe the Bible's claim that it is the Word of God? Just because the Bible says it's God-breathed doesn't necessarily make it God's-breathed. I can claim to be a rhinoceros That doesn't make me one, right? Uh, There are many today who are repackaging the same arguments that have been made for 2,000 years to insist that the Bible is not God's Word. In many of our academies and universities today, you're treated as a fool if you really think the Bible is somehow a supernatural, inspired, divine book. How would you answer that? Someone comes mocking you because you believe the Bible to be the Word of God. How do you respond? Uh, Some today would turn to apologetics. They might point to archaeological findings that continue to confirm the Bible. I have a, a Google alert that sends me emails every day with the latest archaeological findings. It is fascinating. There is not a week that goes by without some new discovery that fits the, the, the message of the Bible. Uh, we see it all the time. New findings, especially lately right now in Jerusalem itself, a number of new findings confirming biblical people, events, places. Another method of apologetics would point to other documents outside the Bible that confirm what it says. So we can look to the writings of the Assyrians. We can look to the writings of the Egyptians. We can look to the Jewish historian Josephus to try and prove that the Bible was right when it says this or that the Bible was correct when it said that. Another way to try and affirm the Bible would be to point to the Bible manuscripts themselves. How carefully those manuscripts were copied. How many copies we have. Why we have great reason for confidence that the Bible we have in front of us today is an accurate bringing to us of the actual things that were written by the apostles in the first century. And Mount Hermon apologetics has its place. And I am thankful for those who spend their time in that field. But ultimately no one is going to put their confidence in the Bible or in God Because of apologetics. Another way we might try to affirm that the Bible's claim to be God's word is absolutely true would be through reason. We might point out the glorious subject matter of the Bible. How even though it was written by many different people over many different centuries, yet somehow it teaches the same glorious God. There's no other book like it. We might point out the majesty of its style. How there's no other literature like it. We might note how the Bible gives a better explanation of this world and how we can understand it than any other philosophy ever given. We might point out how this book has changed the lives of millions of people. How how hardened rapists and murderers 
have become meek and mild servants after being changed by this book. On and on we could go, trying to use reasonable arguments. And if human beings were objective, that would be enough. But remember, even our reasoning and our thinking has been affected by sin. Our reason is subservient to a sinful heart. We can reason away anything we don't like. And we can reason anything that we want to do. Uh, Our reason is not impartial. We are not fair and balanced. Before we were saved, our reason was firmly against God and we would use our reason to justify us in our sins. And even now as Christians, there are still times when our reason follows our flesh. Reason is helpful. Reason is important. But nobody is going to ultimately come to believe the Bible is the word of God through reason alone. The deepest answer is this. Assurance concerning the word of God is a gift of the Holy Spirit that accompanies his saving work in our lives. How do I come to have a conviction, a certainty, an assurance that this book really is divine? The Holy Spirit, through this book, shows me the Lord Jesus Christ. Shows me the glory of God. I taste and see something deeper, better, more glorious than anything else in this world. And as I believe on Christ, I believe on the book that brought me to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Paul says, we thank God constantly for this. Listen, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What I want you to notice in that verse is that Paul thanks God that these people heard the word of God and received it as the word of God and not just the words of men. Why would Paul thank God for that? Because it is God who causes people to see and understand and trust the Bible for what it really is. God uses the Bible to show people their own sin and God uses the Bible to show people the love and the beauty of Christ and once the lights have come on and once they've embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in the Bible comes along with it. Apologetics ought to be sufficient but our hardened sinful nature won't let it be. Reason ought to be sufficient. Our hardened sinful nature won't let it be but when we are born again by the Spirit of God, faith within the Bible comes along. So if you have a friend who has trouble accepting the Bible as the Word of God, the best thing you can do is put a Bible in their hands and say, just go read it. As they read it, pray that the Spirit of God will open their eyes to the glory of Christ. If that happens, they will have no more doubts about the validity of the Bible's claim that it is the Word of God. And since I'm out of time, we're going to answer question three with like a sentence. Here we go. What does it look like to embrace the Bible's authority? Two words. Trust and obey. Uh, If you believe the Bible has authority over your life and that God is loving you with the words it contains, are you reading your Bible? Are you believing your Bible? Are you obeying your Bible? Jesus said it was the one who hears my words and does them who builds his house on the rock. It is the one who hears his words and does not do them that builds his house on sand. 
we show that God is our God and that the Bible is our book by actually believing and obeying what it says. So friend, what is determining how you view this world? Is your flesh the highest authority in your life? Is your own opinion the highest authority in your life? Are the opinions of your peers the highest authority in your life? Or have you submitted yourself to the Bible as the Word of God? And has it become for you a treasure, better than gold, sweeter than honey, a light for you in a dark world? Is it the authority in your life? I pray that it is. Let's pray.